really like kind of being the one to like lead that charge and have a blank slate to work on and say, this is what I think we should do. But I think that's something that's come with time. And it's definitely taken me a while, I think, to build my confidence around. I am the right person to be doing this and I'm not too junior to be do the one doing this. And I think like the support of the managing partners at the firm saying to me like, what do you think? We're looking to you to decide these things. So it's definitely, I think, been a muscle I built at Lair Hippo, which I am very grateful for. Welcome to Career Paths with Teal. I'm your host, Dave Fano. In this episode, we speak with Stephanie Manning-Cohen, who's the Director of Platform at Lair Hippo. There's an increasing excitement around being involved in the platform side of venture capital businesses, and Stephanie is by far one of the best. In this episode, she talks about how she started in the recruiting space, uh, on college campuses, and slowly iterated her way into figuring out what her dream job would be, which she'll tell you is what she has now. What I've heard a few times already is that I feel like you were pretty clear on what your strengths were and like how you wanted to apply them. Strengths and interests. You had like a good understanding of your strengths, interests, and then like how you wanted them to come through in your day to day. How did you figure that out? When did you feel like you started to have a good sense of You've mentioned community building and like the a few times. And so like, was that like in high school that you're like, this, I like bringing people together to do amazing things? So I actually didn't have that moment until I think I was in my role at Lair Hippo. So what I, I didn't identify it as community building. I just identified it as I'm good at this skill. I'm good at bringing people together. I'm a, so to speak, people person. Um, I'm really good at communicating people. Um, I love spending time with people and helping introduce people who have similar interests. So like when you're in high school and you, you know, want to bring people in your class together for something, or you want to start a student group, you don't, I, I didn't identify that as community building, but that's what it was at the time. So I actually really struggled with that early on in my career. I think, I think Nexus had gone through like a career coaching opportunity for people. And it was like, list everything you like about your job, list everything you don't like. And I really struggled with that. And I think that what they were getting at was like, how do you draw out these high level kind of functions within your role? And what do you like? and What do you not like? But I had trouble separating kind of like the tactical piece of it. So maybe I like community building because I like introducing people, but maybe I hate sitting in spreadsheets and organizing people by location or function or something like that. So it's actually something that I didn't realize until later on in my career, but something that I think is worthwhile for for people earlier in their career to think more about like the macro trends and take yourself out of like the tactical piece of those day-to-day job job to do's. One thing that a lot of people have to navigate is how clearly defined a role is when you're applying. So I'm kind of curious, given that, you know, it didn't, you know, I think it was very early days for seed stage platforms to exist when you were applying. What was that process like in terms of like how clear the role was? Maybe there was a clear vision, maybe not clear tactics. And, um, you know, compared to like what it is now or, or how you sort of, sort of co-authored the role with them as you were yeah. applying for it. Yeah. So the role was actually a community director role. So when I, as I was in the offer stages with them, I was like, this is a platform director. Like community is a piece of our platform. But if you want me in this role to oversee the entire post-investment support and 
services strategy, it needs to be kind of a director of platform. So they were like, oh, sure, that works. And they actually had two different people in the role before me, um, each of like different flavors. One woman was very product focused and built products for the portfolio. One woman was very VD focused and loved introducing companies, our portfolio companies to customers, partnerships, and sales. So I think they knew they needed someone to handle a little bit of that stuff and everything else that they had heard about from other VCs and everything else that they saw people doing. And the people in these roles before did a little bit of talent, did a little bit of brand, uh, ran the newsletter, but they really needed someone to, to, I think, oversee the strategy and execute on that. I think it was definitely they knew at a high level what they needed someone to do, but it was my job to say, this is what our platform is. This is our vision. This, these are our values. This is what kind of drives us. These are our goals. And here's the whole overview. So I think it was definitely a, a mix of both. But I think I definitely rewrote what the role was in the last three and a half years. One of the things I think people need to think about as they're looking at roles and looking at companies is like how well the environment like works with them. And I asked you in advance to take our teal like work style assessment. So I know your your results and they they lent and, and you told me you mostly agree. But I think even from this conversation, it seems like you're very comfortable being given like the raw piece of clay and getting to shape it. And um you sort of take initiative and 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 that you found a role that allows you to sort of chart the path and not being told what to do or, you know, giving strict confines. Some people prefer it's like, hey, look, these are the things like optimize it, make it better. It seems like you've found ways to be in roles where like the creational or originating, innovating aspects of them are a big part of your role. Is is that something like you feel like you knew about yourself that you wanted to be in a place where you could author kind of what the role could be? So I think that's something that has also evolved in the last three and a half years because I loved that this role was kind of a blank slate, so to speak, and I could be creative and come up with ideas. But at the time, I was actually hired by, I'd say, like a a non-managing partner. So like another partner at the firm who was my day-to-day manager. We worked one-on-one together. I had one-on-ones with him. I always got feedback. And he actually left the firm seven months into the role. So I all of a sudden kind of had like no close management. I kind of reported to three managing partners. So I'd say before that, I loved having oversight. I loved um, not being told what to do, but having someone to bounce ideas off of and say, am I right on this? But what I've learned in the last three and a half years is like you said, I really like kind of being one to like lead that charge and have a blank slate to work on and say, this is what I think we should do. But I think that's something that's come with time. And it's definitely taken me a while, I think, to build my confidence around that, that like I am the right person to be doing this and I'm not too junior to be do- the one doing this. But it's definitely taken time. And I think that the support of the managing partners at the firm saying to me like, what do you think? Like we're looking to you to decide these things. So it's definitely, I think, been a muscle I built at Lair Hippo, which I'm very grateful for that. I feel like I, I kind of got thrown into the deep end, but what it's resulted in is me kind of really growing as a professional. So a, a topic we like to bring up on a regular basis here is mentorship and mentorship and sponsorship. I think those are kind of different and, and important. And the role that mentors or sponsors have had in your career? The answers can totally be none. I did it all myself. I'm a badass. That's fine. <laughs> That's usually not the case. But I'm curious if, if there's any 
throughout your career that you think have really sort of like been an, uh, a good resource for you? I love the topic of mentorship, mostly because when I was at AppNexus in my first like kind of two years out of school, everyone talked about mentorship and mentorship programs. And I was like, I don't have a mentor. Like, this is so awkward. Who do I ask to be my mentor? Do I just write them an email or send them a Slack? And I felt like I was missing a critical part of my career building blocks by not having a mentor. And then I left AppNexus. And I realized that during my workbench interview process, I had people as my references. And then I realized as I joined Workbench, there were people I went back to at AppNexus for advice about conversations and ideas. Um, and then when I joined Lair Hippo, you know, my past, my former boss at Workbench, I went to for ideas um, and advice and feedback on things. And all of a sudden, I feel like I, I actually feel like I woke up one day. I was like, I, I like to call it a board of directors. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had my board. I had people who were my peers. I had people who um, were more senior than me. I had people who were in different industries than me. And all of a sudden, I felt like I really had mentorship. So for anyone on the call that feels like, they might not have mentorship, like it will come with time. And I actually truly believe that I like past bosses, as long as I can leave on good terms can be some of the best mentors. And I can definitely say like my past bosses and managers are, are some of mine and people I go to constantly. So that's kind of like my journey to mentorship. But I think it's something that you have to you do have to work at and you have to keep the relationship up. I think they say mentorship is a two-way street. And I sometimes believe that and sometimes don't. I don't think you have to reach out to a mentor and it's like, hey, I'm interviewing for this company. I'm having a really hard time figuring out what title I should ask for, what comp band I should ask for. Like, what do you think? But what do you want me to do for you? It's not like that. But trust me, like over time, like there will be things that they will look to you for. And when you can give back, it feels really good. It doesn't always have to be a two-way street in every single interaction. So that's kind of my approach mentorship and kind of how I thought about it over the last few years. One thing that I think came through there is that I think people get very overwhelmed by the word mentor. That's like, you know, I always I often joke that it's like in high school and you have to ask someone to be your boyfriend or girlfriend or partner or whatever. And like mentorship doesn't have to be the same. The, hey, like, will you be my mentor? Like that's that's overwhelming. And that's probably like making it more weighty than it needs to be. Yeah. It, it, it sounds like to me, it's like the, in your mind, you're like, yes, I, this person, I am engaging them in this mentorship relationship. We don't need to make it explicit, um, right. but we can deliver each other mutual value. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think it needs... I don't think I've ever had a conversation with one of them that was like, you are my mentor, right? So those types of things don't have to happen. But in your mind, you know are your mentors. They're really like professional friends and sounding boards. So the same things you would go to your friends about, maybe in your personal life, you're going to these people about in your professional life. So totally agree. It doesn't need to be this super formal thing where you like add them on LinkedIn as a mentor. It, it can happen a little more naturally. Maybe a little bit of uh, advice on transitioning into startups and how to position yourself and what are some of the things that startups look for that might be a great place to go apply for jobs if you're not a perfect fit? I strongly, strongly encourage everyone to read job descriptions really clearly and not just the title of them. Look for that qualification section. I actually think companies have gotten better about really pushing themselves to decide what's required and what's not. So if you are... Let's say you're not coming from a sales background. Let's say you're coming from a consulting background. You did healthcare consulting. Like, oh, great. And you want to be an SDR at an enterprise SaaS company. Like, My advice to you would be 
what skills did you have in your past job? Like, what are the hard skills I'm looking for in SDRs? So that's communication skills. That's like ability to be consultative with clients and like listening and hearing them, relaying information back, analyzing sales data and sales funnels. Think about what hard skills you have, but then also think about what industry expertise you can bring to the table. So if you wanted to be a SaaS SDR and you came from healthcare consulting, you should look at healthcare companies that sell B2B and start there. And maybe your goal is eventually to be like an SDR at Google or an SDR at a different software company that sells workplace software. Like I think not not necessarily jumping two steps ahead, but think about like how can my current skill set get me there eventually? And how can I take out kind of the hard skills, but also the industry expertise to apply them to the next thing? So I have this conversation with people all the time. They're like, I, I've worked in law. I've worked in finance. I've worked at in this industry. Like, what should I do? I know I was talking to someone who has sold, has been a wine distributor for the last five years in their career. And has literally sold specific wines to restaurants in New York City. And he was like, I think I want to get into the startup world. I'm not going to send him like he might not be able to like jump into a role at Teal because maybe he has no experience with workplace and career development software. But like, it could be cool for him to work in a mini bar or Drizzly or something like that and get the startup experience there using his industry expertise. And then let's and then I and then he has startup experience on his resume. And then that helps you get the next startup experience. So I always push people to kind of think about those things that will make them kind of the best, most attractive candidate to match the job description. How can you, like in the context of an interview, some of these things like understand if they need you full-time or not? What are ways to ask that of a startup without sort of feeling too forward or, you know, I mean, it's, it's tricky being a job seeker and being on the interviewee side of the table, but still yeah. you want to be able to, you know, vet them and see if these things are, make sense for you. So how, how have you seen people do that successfully? So in my experience, most roles will clearly indicate whether it's a full-time role or a part-time role. I actually think it's like a legal requirement on a job description to say like, this is a full-time role based in New York City, or this is a part-time role based remotely. Um, so if it doesn't have it on the job description, I think that is a totally fine and fair question to ask up front. Ask your recruiter. Um, recruiters are your best resources and they're your allies in the interview process. So no, you don't want to... You know, Someone asks you like, Hey, tell me about yourself in an interview. And you're like, wait, is this a full-time or part-time role? But once an interviewer reaches out and says, Hey, we're going to set up your interviews. I think it's totally fine to say, Hey, I just want to check in. Is this a full-time role or is this a part-time role? Um, or like, are there bookends? To this date, and I think it's a, I think it's really okay to ask. And then also back to my point about like the three months, six months, twelve month plans, like suss that out. Um, and to say to them, hey, I want to be as successful in the role as possible. Like, what do you define as success in three months, six months, twelve months? So every interviewer will ask, hey, do you have questions for me? That should definitely be a question for a hiring manager or someone who would be your direct boss. Yeah, I think that's the um, the thing because companies may think like your social media example. I think was a great one. Like we need a social media manager, and it's like, oh wait a second, you get in there, and they're like, they actually didn't. They needed someone like half time, but they hired me full time, and now I'm needing to like fill my plate the other twenty hours a week. You know, I'm wondering if there's ways where you can like get a sense from them if they really need a full. They may think they need a full time person, but it's like you get in and like, uh oh, yeah. If there's if there's ways you've seen people kind of like 
discern how much they need of the role? I think those, I personally think those instances, I know I, I provided that example. I think those are far and few between, mostly because headcount is the most expensive thing that a company company has in terms of cost. So I think that if you kind of check the box, you ask the recruiter, is this full-time or part-time? They say full-time. Something's not sitting right. I think you kind of ask those kind of like three-month, six-month, 12-month question. Maybe it's vague. They give you kind of broad answers. You're still not content with it. You want to dig further. I think saying, what's a typical week going to look like for me? Or what's a typical day going to look like for me? And think to yourself, is that something that's going to take me eight hours every day to do? Like, will I fill my time? Ask what growth opportunities look like. Think about what the team makeup is like. If you are coming in as that social media manager and the only other person that's there is a head of marketing, you're likely going to have other marketing duties to pick up and you'll be able to fill your time with that, which I think is an exciting option. But I think those are some tactical things you can do to really push hiring managers um, and founders and kind of interviewers on, will this be a full-time role? That's a great way to ask it. Like, you know, what would my week look like? How would you recommend someone try to suss that out in the interview process of, I mean, obviously you don't have a crystal ball and like, if, you know, if I'm sure they would love to say, Hey, we're going to grow for sure. Um, but like, what things would you be looking for? Like what tea leaves would you be reading to think, okay, these guys are about to sort of transition into not as much growth. So for this question, I put more of my VC hat on in that, Think about what stage your, your last company was at. So personally, I joined AppNexus right after they raised their Series D. You were 300 people. Management was super formal. It felt like a mature startup. So maybe your last company was a Series D or a Series C. Then work your way backwards. So maybe you're looking for companies that are a Series B company or a Series A company. Crunchbase is amazing for this. You can search by stage, you can search by dollars raised, and then you can almost work your way backwards into it. It's There's always kind of like grass is always greener. Early stage, earlier stage companies are higher risk, higher reward in terms of like career growth, stock options, things like that. And later stage companies, I think, offer more structure, more management. But obviously, you're not joining during hyper growth time. But I think working your way backwards into, okay, I really enjoyed these aspects of a series C or D company. Now I want to go a little earlier. Like, what are things I'm not willing to trade off from that series C, D experience? But what am I looking for in series A, series B? So definitely would refer anyone to to Crunchbase to kind of look through that data. Quick follow-up on another question that aligns well with this. What other resources would you look at for daily news about startups in the venture world as people are thinking about you know, ways to engage? Obviously not from like an investment perspective, but more from like an operations platform, jobs. There are a ton, there are a ton of VC newsletters. There's so much content out there. I'm going to keep things really simple. I love Twitter for this. I actually did not have a Twitter before I joined Workbench and I joined and they said, you have to get a Twitter. That's where all VCs are. So you don't have one, get one. You don't need to tweet anything. You can use it as kind of news um, and ingest kind of information that way. But start following funds you're interested in. Start following the partners at those funds and the investment professionals and the VC people. And they're going to be sharing blog posts that they're writing. And they're going to be sharing newsletters that they subscribe to. And they'll share takes on things that, that you know, their opinion. So that helps you kind of tune into a lot, but almost snippets of it. So instead of 
subscribing to every VC's medium blog, you get to say, oh, I really want to read this piece about the future of work from this VC. I'll also give a shout out to the Lair Hippo Daily Roundup. So we write a newsletter about every other day or every other day, depending on kind of news. But it's about kind of startups in our portfolio, what's going on in the tech world. So definitely, definitely recommend that. And then the last thing I will add is Ellie Wheeler from Gravecroft put together this amazing Airtable. I can send it to you, David, if you want to send it out to everyone after that basically collected all of the best blog posts and resources about getting into VC. It's called VC Recruiting Resources. It is amazing. It includes some blog posts from our team about getting into VC. So I always send people that way. But I would definitely encourage anyone to start there and start thinking about what excites you and who's writing you enjoy. And then you can kind of subscribe further from there. How do you recommend reaching out to people you want to network with that you might have a simple connection with, like in the same university? That's a great question. I think I think it's always worth sending a cold email. I say yes to a lot of people. I also say no to a lot of people. It totally depends what that week looks like, kind of what, what else is going on work-wise, if I have bandwidth to take some of these conversations. But I think my best advice is craft something meaningful and that feels really personal. So for example, I've written a bunch about getting into BC on the Lair Hippo Medium blog. There's a bunch of stuff on my social media, on my Twitter. I've been on podcasts about it. So if someone just sends me a cold email that's like, Hey, I'd love to chat with you about BC Platform. Do you have time? That to me says that they did not do anything. All they had to do was Google my name and VC platform and these articles would have popped up. But if someone writes me an email that's like, hey, I read your Medium post about the four questions you need to ask about getting into VC. I do X, Y, and Z and I'm really interested in transitioning. I'd love to better understand kind of what you're working on and how to best break into the field. That to me says that person went the extra step. So you don't have to do a research project on someone. But I do think a little bit of pre-work and a little bit of personalization goes a long way. So we definitely do that. I, I think... I think kind of the the first, second degree connections, whether it's the same university, maybe it's the same high school, maybe you have one person in common. I think that goes a long way there. I also say yes, people who reach out totally cold, so you don't even have to have those connections. And then the last thing I'll add is I do think a lot of VCs are trying to host events and office hours and things around that. So if a VC is hosting that, go through that channel. Um, because they're doing that to kind of scale these opportunities to free up time for their team. So we definitely encourage people to look at those things as well. Yeah, so I think as a, a little bit of a continuation to that question, which you may have answered most of it already, but we'll merge this with questions how to break into like a platform role or sort of create it, which I think you started to hit on some of it. Maybe there's something you'd add to it. And then I think, where do you see BC platform as a sort of sub-discipline of a venture going over the next three to five years. So I think you can kind of merge those two. Cut me off if this becomes too long of an answer because I have a ton of thoughts on this. But I think that in the same way that everyone approaches their platform planning and strategy in different ways, the hiring process is so different at every firm. So I'll try to speak broadly. But I think... VCs are either hiring, I think it falls into one of two buckets. You're either hiring for this like general platform role, which is like a true Swiss army knife, someone who can do a little bit of a lot, or maybe they're hiring for the function role. So I fall into that first bucket. And the second bucket are my teammates, Amanda and Natalie, who I mentioned before. So um, Amanda oversees talent, Natalie Brandon Communications, Natalie came Natalie came from Forbes and she was a writer and her background naturally fit this brand and marketing and comms role. 
Whereas Amanda, I was looking for someone with recruiting and talent experience at startups and VCs. So she fit that role. So I think it's really, it's really depends on like, are they looking for this generalist role or are they looking for a function specific role? Because at the end of the day, if you have been in sales and BD for the last 10 years, you likely are never going to fit this marketing comms role. And you don't want to be in a role that won't set you up for success anyways. So um, I think it's figuring out like, do you want this general one or do you, are you going to go function specific? The one thing I always say to people is, and you mentioned this earlier in our talk, VCs do not scale the way that startups do. Uh, they hire very rarely, usually only when they raise new funds or they're looking to backfill someone maybe more so on the platform side because if they don't have anyone in the role, maybe they're building it for the first time and decide to do it in the middle of kind of the fun cycle, but they don't pop up often. So I always say to people that if you are really interested in getting into this VC platform role and you don't have startup experience, I truly think that joining a startup is one of the best things you can do because I think more often, more often than not, I think VCs want to hire people who have startup experience because having that experience Experience allows you to sit across from the table and look at a founder and say, I know it was like that when I worked at AppNexus. We hit 300 people and like this, these were the issues we faced, which are the issues you're facing today. I think it just helps you bring a lot more empathy to your role. And I think VCs really value it. So because the VC job market is like a waiting game, like think about startup roles. And if you're in a startup role and you're really interested in VC, like maybe there are other... VC adjacent opportunities for you. Think about accelerators. Think about corporate VCs. Think about student incubators. Think about anything that can align yourself with founder experience and entrepreneurship work um, that can set you up and kind of add to your startup skill set. So that's kind of kind of how I advise people on that question. Thank you so so much. Oh. I think everyone's going to have a much better understanding of platform side of VC now and, and working as startups. So thanks so oh. much for the hour and uh, the rest of your team will probably get already started to pick on Natalie and I'm seeing Amanda's name. So I'm, and people love to hear about recruiting. So tell your team to be on the lookout for career conversations. There you go. They're the best in the space. So I'm excited for them. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Career Paths with Teal. Now it's your turn. Do you have an interesting story about your career that you'd like to share? Or would you recommend someone you'd like to hear from? If so, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note by heading to the show notes on this episode for the link to contribute. This podcast is sponsored by Teal, and our job is to help you land a job you love. As a member, you can dive deeper into all the conversations on our show. For information on how to sign up for one of our programs, visit www.tealhq.com. Conversations for this show were facilitated by me, Dave Fano, and Eric Martin. Produced for us by Rainbow Creative by Matthew Jones and Ritu Jagannath. Audio editing by Hammond Chamberlain. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.